0: Section eleven of the good dog book this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by B suite 13 scally the story of a perfect gentleman part 2 by ian hay division 4 a walk along the village street was always a great event for a scalbar Still, it must have contained many humiliating moments for one of his sensitive disposition, for he was always pathetically anxious to make friends with other dogs, but was rarely successful. Little dogs merely bit his legs, and big dogs cut him dead. I think this was why he usually commenced his morning round by calling on a rabbit. The rabbit lived in a hutch in a yard at the end of a passage between two cottages, the first turning on the right after you entered the village and Excalibur always dived down this at the earliest opportunity. It was no use for Aline, who usually took him out on these occasions, to endeavor to hold him back. Either Excalibur called on the rabbit by himself, or Aline went with him. There was no other alternative. Arrived at the hutch, Excalibur wagged his tail and contemplated the rabbit with his usual air of vacuous benevolence. The rabbit made not the faintest response, but continued to munch green feed, twitching its nose in a superior manner. Finally, when it could endure Excalibur's admiring inspection and hard breathing no longer, it turned its back and retired into its bedroom. Excalibur's next call was usually at the butcher's shop, where he was presented with a specially selected and quite unsalable fragment of meat. He then crossed the road to the baker's, where he purchased a half-penny bun for which his escort was expected to pay. After that, he walked from shop to shop, wherever he was taken, with great docility and enjoyment, for he was a gregarious animal and had a friend behind or underneath almost every counter in the village. Men, women, babies, kittens, even ducks, they were all one to him. At one time, Aline had endeavored to teach him a few simple accomplishments, such as begging for food, dying for his country, and carrying parcels. She was unsuccessful in all three instances. Excalibur on his hind legs stood about five feet six, and when he fell from that eminence, as he invariably did when he tried to beg, he usually broke something. He was hampered, too, by inability to distinguish one order from another. More than once, he narrowly escaped with his life through mistaking an urgent appeal to come to heel out of the way of an approaching automobile for a command to die for his country in the middle of the road. As for educating him to carry parcels, a single attempt was sufficient. The parcel in question contained a miscellaneous assortment of articles from the grocer's, including lard, soap, and safety matches. It was securely tied up, and the grocer kindly attached it by a short length of string to a wooden clothespin. In order to make it easier for Escalabar to carry, they set off home. Escalabar was most apologetic about it afterward, besides being extremely unwell, but he had no idea. He explained to Aline that anything put into his mouth was not meant to be eaten. He then tendered the clothespin and some mangled brown paper with an air of profound abasement. After that, no further attempts at compulsory education were undertaken." It was his daily walk with Aline, however, which introduced Escalibur to life. Life in its broadest and most romantic sense. As I was not privileged to be present at the opening incident of this episode, or at most of its subsequent developments, the direct conduct of this narrative here passes out of my hands. One sunny morning in July, a young man in clerical attire sat breakfasting in his rooms at Mrs. Tice's. Mrs. Tice's establishment was situated on the village street, and Mrs. Tice was in the habit of letting her ground floor to lodgers of impeccable respectability. It was half past eleven, which is a late hour for the clergy to breakfast, but this young man appeared to be suffering from no qualms of conscience on the subject. He was making an excellent breakfast and reading the Henley results with a mixture of rapture and longing. He had just removed the sportsman— from the convenient buttress of the teapot, and substituted punch when he became aware that day had turned to night. Looking up, he perceived that his open window, which was rather small and of the casement variety, was completely blocked by a huge, shapeless, and opaque mass. Next moment, the mass revolved itself into an animal of enormous size and surprising appearance, which fell heavily into the room and Like a stream that's spreading from a cliff, fails in midair, but gathering at the base, remakes itself, rose to its feet, and advancing to the table, laid a heavy head on the white cloth, and lovingly passed its tongue, which resembled that of a great ant eater, round a cold chicken conveniently adjacent. Five minutes later the window framed another picture. This time a girl of twenty, white clad and wearing a powder blue felt hat, caught up on one side by a silver buckle which twinkled in the hot morning sun. The curate started to his feet. Excalibur, who was now laying on the hearth rug dismembering the chicken, thumped his tail guiltily on the floor, but made no attempt to rise. "'I am very sorry,' said Aline, "'but I am afraid my dog is trespassing. May I call him out?' "'Certainly,' said the curate. "'But,' he racked his brains to devise some means of delaying the departure of this radiant, fragrant vision." He is not the least in the way. I am very glad of his company. It was most neighborly of him to call. After all, I suppose he is one of my parishioners. And, and, he blushed. I hope you are too. Aline gave him her most entrancing smile. And from that hour, the curate ceased to be his own master. I suppose you are Mr. Gilmore, said Aline. Yes, I have been here only three weeks, and I have not met everyone yet. "'I have been away for two months,' Aline mentioned. "'I thought you must have been,' said the curate, rather subtly for him. "'I think my brother-in-law called on you a few days ago,' continued Aline, on whom the curate's last remark had been made a most favorable impression. She mentioned my name. "'I was going to return the call this very afternoon,' said the curate, and he firmly believed that he was speaking the truth. "'Won't you come in? We have an excellent chaperone,' indicating a scalabar. "'I will come and open the door.' "'Well, he certainly won't come out unless I come and fetch him,' admitted Aline thoughtfully. A moment later, the curate was at the front door and led his visitor across the little hall into the sitting-room. He had not been absent more than thirty seconds, but during that time a plateful of sausages had mysteriously disappeared, and as they entered, Excalibur was apologetically settling down on the hearth rug with a cottage loaf between his paws.' Aline uttered cries of dismay and apology, but the curate would have none of them. My fault entirely, he insisted. I have no right to be breakfasting at this hour, but this is my day off. You see, I take early service every morning at seven, but on Wednesdays we cut it out, omit it, and have full matins at ten. So I get up at half-past nine, take service at ten, and come back to my rooms at eleven and have breakfast. It is my weekly treat. "'You deserve it,' said Aline feelingly. "'Her religious exercises were limited to going to church on Sunday morning "'and coming out, if possible, after the litany. "'And how do you like much more, Ham?' "'I did not like it at all when I came,' said the curate. "'But recently I have begun to enjoy myself immensely.' "'He did not say how recently.' "'Were you in London before?' "'Yes, in the East End. "'It was pretty hard work, but a useful experience.' I feel rather lost here during my spare time. I get so little exercise. In London, I used to slip away for an occasional outing in a Leander Scratch 8, and that kept me fit. I am inclined, he added ruefully, to put on flesh. Leander, are you a blue? The curate nodded. You know about rowing, I see, he said appreciatively. The worst of rowing, he continued, is that it takes up so much of a man's time that he has no opportunity of practicing anything else. Cricket, for instance. All curates ought to be able to play cricket. I do my best, but there isn't a single boy in the Sunday school who can't bowl me. It's humiliating. "'Do you play tennis at all?' asked Aline. "'Yes, in a way. I am sure my sister will be pleased if you come and have a game with us some afternoon.' The enraptured curate had already opened his mouth to accept this demure invitation when Escaliber, rising from the hearth rug, stretched himself luxuriously and wagged his tail, thereby removing three pipes, an inkstand, a tobacco jar, and a half-completed sermon from the writing table. Division Five. Escaliber was heavily overworked in his new role of chaperone during the next three or four weeks and any dog less ready to oblige than himself might have felt a little aggrieved at the treatment to which he was subjected. There was the case of the tennis lawn, for instance. He had always regarded this as his own particular sanctuary, dedicated to reflection and repose. But now the net was stretched across it, and Aline and the curate performed antics all over the court with rackets and small white balls, which, though they did not hurt Escalabar, kept him awake. It did not occur to him to convey himself elsewhere, for his mind moved slowly, and the united blandishments of the players failed to bring the desirability of such a course home to him. He continued to lie in his favorite spot on the sunny side of the court, looking injured but forgiving, or slumbering perseveringly amid the storm that raged round him. It was quite impossible to move Excalibur once he had decided to remain where he was, So Aline and the curate agreed to regard him as a sort of artificial excrescence, like the buttress in a fives court. If the ball hit him, as it frequently did, the player waiting for it was at liberty to either play it or claim a let. This arrangement added a piquant and pleasing variety to what is too often, especially when indulged in by mediocre players, a very dull game. Worse was to follow, however, one day, Aline and the curate conducted Escalibar to a neighboring mountain range, at least so it appeared to Escalibar, and played another ball game. This time they employed long sticks with iron heads, and two balls which, though they were much smaller than tennis balls, were incredibly hard and painful. Escalibar, though willing to help and anxious to please, could not supervise both the balls at once. As sure as he ran to retrieve one, the other came after him and took him unfairly in the rear. Excalibur was the gentlest of creatures, but the most perfect gentleman had his dignity to consider. After being struck for the third time by one of these balls, he whipped around, picked it up in his mouth, and gave it a tiny pinch, just as a warning. At least he thought it was a tiny pinch. The ball retaliated with unexpected ferocity. It twisted and turned. It emitted long, snaky spirals of some elastic substance, which clogged his teeth and tickled his throat and wound themselves round his tongue and nearly choked him. Panic-stricken, he ran to his mistress, who, with weeping and with laughter, removed the writhing horror from his jaws and comforted him with fair words. After that, Excalibur realized that it is wiser to walk behind golfers than in front of them, It was a boring business, though, and very exhausting, for he loathed exercise of every kind, and his only periods of repose were the occasions on which the expedition came to a halt on certain small, flat lawns, each of which contained a hole with a flag in it. Here, Escalabar would lie down, with the contented sigh of a tired child, and go to sleep, as he almost invariably lay down between the hole and the ball. The players agreed to regard him as a bunker. Aline putted round him, but the curate, who had little regard for the humbler works of creation, Escalabar thought, used to take his mashie and attempt a lofting shot, an enterprise in which he almost invariably failed, to Escalabar's great inconvenience. Country walks were more tolerable, for Aline's supervision of his movements, which was usually marked by an officious severity, was sensibly relaxed on these days, and Excalibur found himself at liberty to range abroad, amid the heath and through the corvices, engaged in a pastime that he imagined was hunting. One hot afternoon, wandering into a clearing, he encountered a hare. The hare, which was suffering from extreme panic, owing to a terrifying noise behind it, the blast of the newest and most vulgar motor horn to be precise, Was bolting right across the clearing. After the manner of hares where objects directly in front of them are concerned, the fugitive entirely failed to perceive Escalabar, and indeed ran right underneath him on his way to cover. Escalabar was so unstrung by this adventure that he ran back to where he had left Aline and the curate. They were sitting side by side on the grass, and the curate was holding Aline's hand. Escalabar advanced on them thankfully, and indicated by an ingratiating smile that a friendly remark or other recognition of his presence would be gratefully received, but neither took the slightest notice of him. They continued to gaze straight before them in a mournful and abstracted fashion. They looked not so much at Escalabar as through him. First the hare, then Aline and the curate. Escalabar began to fear that he had become invisible, or at least transparent. Greatly agitated, he drifted away into a neighboring plantation full of young pheasants. Here he encountered a keeper, who was able to dissipate his gloomy suspicions for him without any difficulty whatsoever. But Aline and the curate sat on. A hundred pounds a year, repeated the curate. A past degree and no influence? I can't preach and I have no money of my own. Dearest, I ought never to have told you. Told me what? "'Inquired Aline softly. "'She knew quite well, but she was a woman, "'and woman can never leave well enough alone. "'The curate, turning to Aline, "'delivered himself of a statement of three words. "'Aline's reply was a softly whispered, "To quoi?' "'It had to happen, dear,' she added cheerfully, "'for she did not share the curate's burden "'of responsibility in the matter. "'If you had not told me, "'we should have been miserable separately. "'Now that you have told me, We can be miserable together. And when two people who, who, she hesitated. The curate supplied the relative sentence. Aline nodded her head in acknowledgement. Yes, who are, like you and me, miserable together. They are happy, see? I see, said the curate gravely. Yes, you were right there. But we can't go on living on a diet of joint misery. We shall have to face the future. What are we going to do about it? Then Aline spoke up boldly for the first time. "'Gerald,' she said, "'we shall simply have to manage on a hundred a year.' But the curate shook his head. "'Dearest, I should be an utter cad if I allowed you to do such a thing,' he said. "'A hundred a year is less than two pounds a week.' "'A lot of people live on less than two pounds a week,' Aline pointed out longingly. "'Yes, I know.' If we could rent a three-shilling cottage, and I could go about with a spotted handkerchief round my neck, and you could scrub the doorsteps, Coram Pablo, we might be very comfortable, but the clergy belong to the black-coated class, and people in the lower ranks of the black-coated class are the poorest people in the whole wide world. They have to spend money on luxuries, collars and charwoman, and so on, which a working man can spend entirely on necessities." "'It wouldn't merely mean no pretty dresses and a lot of hard work for you, Aline. "'It would mean starvation. "'Believe me, I know. "'Some of my friends have tried it, and I know.' "'What happened to them?' asked Aline fearfully. "'They all had to come down in the end, some soon, some late, but all in time, "'to taking parish relief.' "'Parish relief?' "'Yes, not official regulation. "'Rate aided charity.' but the infinitely more humiliating charity of their well-to-do neighbors. Quiet checks, second-hand dresses, and things like that. No, little girl, you and I are too proud. Too proud of the cloth for that. We will never give a handle to the people who are always waiting to have a fling at the improvident clergy. Not if it breaks our hearts, we won't. You are quite right, dear, said Aline quietly. We must wait. Then the curate said the most difficult thing he had said yet. I shall have to go away from here. Aline's hand turned cold in his. Why? She whispered, but she knew. Because if we wait here, we shall wait forever. The last curate and much more ham. What happened to him? He died. Yes, at fifty-five. And he had been here for thirty years. Preferment does not come in sleepy villages. I must go back to London. The East End? East or South or North? It doesn't signify anywhere but west. In the east and south and north, there is always work to be done. Hard work. And if a parson has no money and no brains and no influence, and can only work, run clothing clubs and soup kitchens, and reclaim drunkards, London is the place for him. So off I go to London, my beloved, to lay the foundations of paradise for you and me. For you and me. There was a long silence. Then the pair rose to their feet and smiled on each other extremely cheerfully, because each suspected the other, brightly, of low spirits. Shall we tell people? asked the curate. Aline thought and shook her head. No, she said, nice or not, it will make a splendid secret. Just between us two, eh? said the curate, kindling at the thought. Just between us two, agreed Aline, and the curate kissed her very solemnly. A secret is a comfortable thing to lovers, especially when they are young and about to be lonely. At this moment, a leonide head, supported on a lumbering and ill-balanced body, was thrust in between them. It was a Scalabar, taking sanctuary with the church from the vengeance of the law. We might tell Scally, I think, said Aline. Rather, assented the curate, he introduced us. So Aline communicated the great news to a scalabar. You do approve, dear, don't you? she said. Excalibur, instinctively realizing that this was an occasion where liberties might be taken, stood up on his hind legs and placed his forepaws on his mistress's shoulders. The curate supported them both. And you will use your influence to get us a living wage from somewhere, won't you, old man? asked the curate. Excalibur tried to lick both their faces at once and succeeded. End of section 11